0: Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 698, this episode... And uh, what do you guys got on the Nerdist Community Corporate? We are about to announce the guests for the second Nerdist Podcast live... And it's fucking nuts! It's gonna be amazing. Um, so uh, we're still just trying to get a uh, PR approval sign-off on that. So uh, we'll announce that soon. FunComfortableTour.com for tickets to the stand-up show and the podcasts. Uh, I've got a photo blog. Uh, Christian Giordano has sent in uh, her and her husband are both big fans of the podcast. And he is a full-time teacher and dad who is finally pursuing becoming a nature photographer. They live up in Tahoe. And he's been saying he's going to do it forever and is finally doing like like landscape photos and wildlife photos. And he's got his Instagram is summitphotog and then Andy Giordano, G-I-O-R-D-A-N-O, com, And he has some really beautiful photos on there. And I think it's really cool that he's got all these things and he's still finding and making the time to like do the things that he's always wanted to do. I think- Kyle, you're a delightful son of a bitch. Thank you. Katie, what do you got? Uh, one of the nerdest family
1: members, Dan Casey, has a book out called 100 Things Avengers Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's by Triumph Books. You can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. And basically, it's your one-stop shop for all things Avengers, starting with the comic book's creation in 1963 and all the way up into Age of Ultron.
0: Way to go, oh, Dan Casey. Yeah. Good job, Dan Casey. Dan Casey is very talented. I, I was at a Dan comic Casey. show the other night where there were Dan Casey groupies. They found out I work for Nerds, an and like, do you know Dan Casey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was real weird, just a bunch of ladies. them everything they need to know about the Avengers. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what that meant. That was a very suggestive <laughs> voice. I did not have anything specific in my mind when I said it and I don't know what I was saying. Um this episode was uh is Brad Meltzer who is the fucking coolest. He's so great. So oh my, great. God. Oh my cool. god. So uh he he's and he's written for comic books for years he's an author uh he's a host um uh Brad Meltzer's decoded There was a time where I thought there were three different Brad Meltzers because there was like no that's no it's all the one guy <laughs> and He was on the first year I believe he was on in the first year of the Nerdist podcast and then we just brought him back. He has a new book called "The President's Shadow," awesome. which sounds rad, and he has a, a children's bo- a series of books called "I Am," which are so. Yeah, that, yeah. The latest one for my little nephew. The latest one he gave me is "I Am Lucille Ball," and oh it's my just God. he basically is just highlighting really cool people that children's books don't normally highlight to educate children on positive role models for them. So Brad's a great guy, and this was a really fun conversation that got a very philosophical. Brad Meltzer has a good effect in a, on a room. Yeah. Like people just want to... Plays it to the top of its intelligence. Yes. He also told one of the most badass stories ever about Secret Service. <laughs> oh, yes. <Yeah>. Holy shit. <laughs> All right, so we're going to get to that in a second. Here's what is episode number 698 with Brad Meltzer. Now entering Nerdist.com. What is this Lucille Ball book you Present have? For you. What is this? Our new children's book in three weeks. I mean, so it's a peanut style art.
1: First of all, you're so good. You're fast. So it's to me, it's 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 Peanuts mixed with Calvin and Hobbes. Ke- peanuts and Calvin and Hobbes, 100%. Right, that's what it is. So yeah, we've been doing a line of children's books. We start, I was tired of my daughter looking at reality TV show stars and thinking that's a hero. So we started with I'm Amelia Earhart. And we, oh yeah, there
0: you go. There's there's the Bill Water. You see right the Bill Watterson, right? Yeah.
1: And the Bill and the and you know it's like Peanuts mouth, Bill Watterson eyes, like chris Heliopolis, uh and, and then we did i am rosa parks albert einstein jackie robinson and in three weeks we do lucille ball
0: do you know about our at midnight stage is it you don't have her set do you it's the original out of lucy stage
1: no crap
0: so it, the, wait wait so, so, go. So,
1: keep going you see i'm the, gonna, the gonna the show fir, you where the it first, is the
0: first picture in here we drew it is our stage oh no way so wait i'm gonna show you
1: you're gonna wait, get to the part where she gets there because everyone's like why are you doing lucy i'm like you know what I'm tired of my daughter looking at reality TV show stars, but also I want my daughter to have an entertainment hero.
0: Well, Lucy who, is a fucking pioneer. Well, Why saying, wouldn't you want No, to?
1: no, but I said I want—here, right there. There's your stage.
0: Yeah. I'll, yeah, you can see it on the way out.
1: But I said I want my daughter to have an entertainment hero who isn't just famous for being thin and pretty. Like, Lucy is not just it's okay to be different. She's, it's fantastic to be different. And there she is. She, like, you know, Desi Lou made Mission Impossible in Star Trek. Like, how much nerd goodness did that give us alone?
0: Well, I mean, the Kardashians are famous just because they're rich and right. noxious. Well, I,
1: say, I always say that's, you know, to my kids, I say that's being fame. That's being famous. Famous is very different than being a hero. Yes. So oh, we this did this whole genius. line of books, and Lucille Ball is out in three weeks. Oh, my God. That's so cool. So you have the early first copy. You, uh, you And I brought are, you one to give a
0: friend. You are also a, a pioneer uh, because we, <laughs> we need more positive role models. <laughs> that is my role role goal, pal. That is all I do. I mean, obviously. Obviously, you know, most people just want to be rich and famous and that's fine, but the handful of people who have a soul that are left will uh That's will my listen, this. that's
1: my heart and book form that you're yeah, I mean that's it. Like if I was smart, I guess I should just write more thrillers. That's what pays the bills, blah, blah, blah. But um these books are my goal is it's not just doing like this will be our sixth one and i was like i don't want to do six my goal is to help you build a library for your kids and your nieces and your nephews so you can say like you know everyone's giving them as baby gifts i'm like yeah give your kid a real hero
0: yeah i mean you know what's great about it is that the the art's great and it reads like a it 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 reads like a children's picture book and that's what But it's got the story uh, and they're funny of how she uh, and you got three stooges there oh this is so rad This is so rad.
1: Yeah, she's fun. She's uh, awesome.
0: Brad, Brad, you are a uh, Nerdist Podcast alum from, I mean, from... From the beginning. Yes. That was it. The OG days.
1: Before you had the, uh, the entire, you know... Metropolis that you now uh <laughs> you know are lord over.
0: You came over to the E studio when we were in the G four building and E well, building. Well, we were
1: we were in, we in G four and I remember that at that point in time we were just like we were looking for rooms to record in because we yeah. were just like
0: maybe this room. What about this one? We just yeah. found an empty room and right, whatever, sort of crossed no our fingers was.
1: that no one would. It was like a sign in. on the door that said "Do not knock." and yeah. that was like the setup. That was the plan.
0: It was so, like, so I no. hope uh, juliana Rancic or Ryan Seacrest doesn't burst in here and need to have an emergency entertainment meeting.
1: That's right. That's exactly. I mean i remember sitting at your desk and just we were still at that point excited that people were sending free stuff (laughs) right (laughs) like we were like look here's some free they sent me free stuff brad and i was like cool and you like here's some free stuff had you started doing decoded at that point i don't even think so i think it was even before that i just done comics this
0: is probably like four years ago
1: oh it was definitely four years ago yeah i don't think i was even on i was not on tv then no decoded hadn't even started
0: so we really launched. Your, no, I'm kidding. Hey, listen,
1: uh, I, everything I owe Chris Hardwick, just 90% I owe to you. Of it. Okay, I'm just going to ask for a small
0: tithing. Listen, uh, it's LA, baby. Everyone gets a percentage. <laughs> you know what's been interesting? So, so the LA conversation. Just for a sec. Do you live in LA? No, Florida. No, you live. In, what part of Florida? Fort Lauderdale. You live in. You live in Fort Lauderdale. You're not. Wait, are you from there? My mom's from Miami. Wait, where? Um, well, she was. I think originally, my grandfather owned a bowling center. Sort of, I think, sort of near Hialeah. My, my, when I, but my earliest memories in Miami were Miami Lakes.
1: Wait, I, I mean, I used to play against Miami Lakes. Wait, you didn't go to high school in Florida? No, did you? no, 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 no. But we down. lived
0: there for for a minute when I was a kid because oh, my yeah. mom was from there. and My dad we is your travel. mom still around? Yeah, my mom was in. Ask um, your
1: mom if she knows Jumbo's restaurant.
0: Jumbo's restaurant, because
1: that's my my father in law's restaurant. That was over fifty nine years, and everyone that's from that area knows Jumbo's, and that's my family's restaurant. Right now, yeah. Ask her if she knows Jumbo's restaurant for fried shrimp.
0: No Jumbo's. So interesting to hear someone text on a podcast, right? Isn't that exciting? Uh, Look, he's typing. He's typing in Miami, not Mumbai. Don't fucking (laughs) autocorrect to Mumbai. How is Miami Mumbai? I don't know. You just
1: revealed you can't
0: spell Miami. Autocorrect. Yeah, it's M U. That's right. Uh, all right. So I've just texted my mom, do you know Jumbo's Restaurant in Miami? Let's see. We are awaiting the results the on that. Yes, my mom was... Uh, my mom born and raised in Miami. My awesome. Grand, my grandfather, and that whole side of the family, you know, lived yeah,
1: in Yeah, no. In so Miami. I see you're California crazy and I raise you Florida crazy.
0: <laughs> you could have just said Florida. Right. Um, my, uh, and then my dad lived... In the last few years of his life, he primarily lived in Bradenton, which is outside of Tampa.
1: Sure, no, that's like you got this super conservative town with this super liberal part of Florida. Well,
0: you know, the funny part is my you know my dad moved to Bradenton in his late sixties, and he was like, "I'm the youngest fucking person here." But uh, uh, it was it was crazy. It was a crazy town. But it's this idea, you know. On the last Hostful podcast we did, I was telling Jonah about something, and I explained where it was and what streets it was near. And if you're not from Los Angeles, that drives people crazy because they go, oh, it's like the California sketch. Why do you got to say where things are? <laughs> and here's my message to anyone. Los Angeles, if you lived here, you would understand, is fucking massive. And it's, there's no centralized part of L.A. That's right. And there's no centralized identity of Los Angeles. It is basically thousands of municipalities strung together by traffic. And each little area has its own identity. So when you say... I went to Fries. It's it saying where something is informs its identity. So you would say going to the Fries in Burbank would be going different than the Fries in Woodland Hills, which is different than the Fries in Hermosa. Like it's so saying where things are gives you more information about what they are because of because that's how we geo like geotag our conversations. Yeah, and it's
1: like saying which Harlem Globetrotters do you like best. Then if you say you like curling on a metal lemon, you know what part <laughs> of you're talking. It's just like that. Okay, right, my mom. Right
0: back. Do you know Jumbo's Restaurant in Miami? You know? Of course. Why?
1: This is my family's restaurant. Say, my, say this, you know, Bobby Flam.
0: Do you know Bobby Flam? Yeah, that's
1: the owner. That's my father-in-law. Let me tell you the story of Jumbo's Restaurant because it's okay. actually spectacular. You, know, you need to hear this for your mother. So Jumbo's Restaurant, uh, like every restaurant in Miami during the 60s, if you were black, you couldn't eat there. You they just went, you had to go around the back. You had to be served everywhere else. My father in law takes over the restaurant in the sixties and sees Martin Luther King Jr. and is inspired and says those are rules for an uncivilized time. They have to change. hires the first, hires three black employees. Thirty of his white employees quit. They're like I'm not working with anyone who's black. Jumbos becomes a civil rights landmark. That is one of the most famous restaurants. Joe Stone. The only the only um, Joe Stone crab. My the mark. only well the only the only three. James Beard Award winners of American Classics in Miami are Joe Stonecrab's, Versailles, the first Cuban restaurant, and my family's restaurant, Jumbos. And oh, so everyone wow. from Miami knows it and it, it basically it just closed it this year. It was on the front page of the New York Times because it was everyone knows this is the restaurant that integrated all of Miami for blacks and whites. That's fantastic. That's my
0: history, pal. Uh, well your father in law is a hero. <laughs> he is a, a super duper amazing hero.
1: Like did it when nobody was doing it. I'm seeing the, uh, the Yeah, the te- dot dot the, dots. The text
0: bubble is Processing, processing. Mm-hmm. What all has happened to you since? Because you also have the oh, doing You also have uh, the president in the president's shadow. Yes, we got the new book coming. Yeah, the new book is out this week. So you uh, you yourself have a shit ton of stuff going on. We uh,
1: when when we first met, both of us were so had nothing happening that we were just like again would hang out to play with whatever free shit they sent you, and now uh, we get to have fun. So I feel very blessed. I'm, I'm sure. I'm gonna get you back don't. to that in a second. Yes, I've what you say. A,
0: my dad was friendly with his father.
1: Isidore. My, that's my wife's grandfather. I mean, that's like my whole family here.
0: Okay. Bobby is the father-in-law. Yeah. Izzy, I think. Is- she I said Isidore. That's it. Yes. I,
1: I love that. You can like test to see if I'm bullshitting you, right? No, there it is. The <laughs> or you
0: and my mom have had this weird <laughs> we, decoding Well, I game. did.
1: I said, wait, here's what we're going to do. First, Miss Hardwick, we're going to go in and we're going to tell <laughs> him...
0: <laughs> uh, Okay, cool. Uh, Bobby's falling in love with a guy I'm podcasting right now.
1: Tell her to look up the New York Times story on Bobby Flam. Just put in that if you put in New York Times Bobby Flam, she's gonna have a story that she's gonna love to read. Okay. B o b b y f l a m.
0: Yeah. Uh, is it a recent article?
1: Yeah, it's recent. It'll come up. Um, because the because Jumbo's just closed, and my wife sent it to the New York Times. Like she was like, oh, let's just see they report sometimes in Florida. She figured she get like a local mention. And they did a story on it, and then they call us, and then they come, to, and then they interview Bobby, and then they call us back, and they're like, "Don't tell anyone." But we think it's going to get good placement, so we think, "Oh, it's on the front of like the Metro section or something." Then they call us back, like, "You can't say anything. It's going to be on the front page of the New York Times." Oh shit! And then we're worried because my father-in-law is closing this restaurant. We think these are going to be. This is like going to be like a funeral for him. Like it's sad. He's closing the restaurant. He's gotten older, and this is going to be the end. It winds up getting picked up by the BBC by Al Jazeera, by—he's doing international press, the line is out the door, and it winds up becoming a victory parade for this man who helped civil rights in Miami, and my family gets to, like, watch him have the greatest day of his life. It oh, was that's spectacular. fantastic. So, <clears throat>
0: so he didn't want to turn the restaurant over to someone else? It was—you
1: know what, the, the, the area now is just—it's it's a dying area. We got, I got to know what your mom says. This is
0: it. She says—she wants to know who. Uh, who are you podcasting? Brad um, Brad Meltzer
1: um so basically we were just you know we didn't know what was going to happen we thought uh he, he knew he couldn't sell it to anyone else because he knew that the neighborhood just can't do it and he was just not going to fight it anymore and there was no one in our family he was you know i'm not going to take over the shrimp empire of like and the best thing is is that the best fried chicken and fried shrimp in all of florida and in arguably in the country It's it's always on the list of the best fried chicken in the country Is made by my white Jewish family. (laughs) Like, how fantastic is that? Like, and you can give me like a TV show, and you can give me a you know best-selling books, but like my white Jewish family makes the best fried chicken in the whole country on fried shrimp.
0: And do you did you pick any of this up? Um, No, but
1: uh, I I grew up in the place. I mean, I literally was going there since I'm 15 years old because I married a girl that I went to high school with, and we you know we dated other people and split apart, but we came back together. But I used to eat there free. So, no one can eat fried chicken and fried shrimp like. You should
0: ask, you should tell Bobby that my grandfather. It was a guy named Jim Facenti, and Jim, my grandfather Jim, owned Palm Springs Lanes, which was a bowling center. You gonna make me do this now? I'm gonna make We're you do it do now. It.
1: We're gonna do it. I see your text to my grandfather, and I'm gonna write a text my to my mom. Mike. Says, wow,
0: this brings back a flood of memories. Yeah, like she, she knows your. I, I liked your mom. She knows your family.
1: Okay, so wait, what's your wait? So what's your grandfather's name?
0: His name was Jim Facenti, F-A-C-E-N-T-E. It should be pronounced Facente, but uh, the Italians wanted to fit in with the Americans. And what lane. was the bowling alley? Palm Springs Lanes it closed in um late 80s i think
1: okay i'll ask them but i uh, yeah no everyone who's from miami that time they know they know bobby and they know jumbos that's
0: crazy crazy right they must have known each other as local business owners of course i'm ask them right now back when miami was cool that's right the best, know, is, is that the best part is is that the
1: best part is at um so jumbos is like it's in the inner city but the delano and like all the fancy hotels people would come in and they want some authentic thing from miami so People, super famous people, like from Lenny Kravitz. I remember at one point, um, this guy comes into the restaurant. He was sent by the Delano concierge, just like, here's the real guy. Go to Real Jumbos. And he meets my father, and who comes out to talk with everyone. This is like two, three years ago. And the guy says, oh, what do you do for a living? And he says, oh, I make movies. He says, what's your name? He says, Jerry Bruckheimer. He says, have you made <laughs> any movies I know? And then my father-in-law says to him, "Well, yeah, my ne- my my son-in-law writes books. Have you made any movies? I know." And Bruckheimer, of course, like rattles off his movies, and and then I get the text that says, Do "You know a guy named Jerry Bruckheimer," <laughs> like, <laughs> which is fantastic.
0: <laughs> so yes, Bruckheimer—that's not a real name, which is. Uh,
1: so I'm going to ask him right now.
0: You know, Miami. My I I have um I have a lot of memories, but they're. Sort of like snapshots. I mean, growing up in Miami, I mean, for the brief period of time that I was there, and of course we would go back every year and visit my grandfather in the bowling center. But you know that that Palm Springs Lanes is where I did, you know, my grandfather was one of the first people to put video games in the bowling center. That was a big deal. So, and what he, games did he have? Um, he well, when the when the when the place was up and running, he had uh, Defender, Zaxxon, Gorf, track and fields, Gorf, um, and Zaxxon were. Zaxxon was like a 3D awesome. Zaxxon was like the first. That was
1: not asteroids. That was like, oh, cow! They figured out how to do three dimensional.
0: Yeah, Zaxxon was the one that had that z-axis. Oh, you had that like that stick shift thing, that 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 pilot. And Gorf was the basically like the mega game, yeah, which ripped off all the other games. But uh, you know, my grandfather devised a system of of red quarters, so he would take, you know, like I don't know, a a stack of quarters, and. and paint, put red nail polish on them, and and they were just a stack of quarters for me. And so when they would, when uh, the guy they would came come back. and empty the game, like they would go back into the pile. Awesome, I was very spoiled. But uh, yeah, he, um, I mean, like my, memory you know what was I had Miami. to do to play
1: Donkey Kong Junior. I used to go to the Pathmark in Brooklyn or the Shoprite, or whatever it was, and I used to ask ladies if I could, because my family had no money, and I used to go to them and say, "Can I carry your bags to your car?" And then they would tip me a quarter, and then I would go play Donkey Kong Junior. and try and you know memorize whatever the pattern was. And then I'd go back and help another lady carry her bags. And like I was like pellet by pellet. That's how I got quarters to beat Donkey Kong. So it's sort
0: of like the. Um it, it, it was sort of like the plot of Loverboy, but instead of sex, you were carrying their groceries. That was me. I, mean, I were, was
1: working for the weekend. <laughs> you were a you were a grocery gigolo. Uh, I really. I mean, I was. And, and notice how I said women. <laughs> I was like, there was no men that I was. I was like, hello, ma'am. Well,
0: um, you know, a little, like to feed my habit. Little Donkey Kong Junior history. My father's bowling center in Memphis was the first, because uh, obviously I is a video game fanatic. Had a re- I had a relationship with the video game company that would bring the, the cabinets in naturally, and they gave us. We were the first establishment in the South, or so we were told, to get the Donkey Kong Junior machine. That was a big deal. And we had, you know, my dad's place had uh, it was twice as big as my grandfather's place, and you know, we had tr- that's where I played Tron and Robotron Dude, and I, uh,
1: Robotron. I mean, give me two handles. That blew my mind. Right, that was it. Robotron and even Tron also, although. You, the thing about Tron was, you just wanted to play the racing part, right? Like, that was it. I was just like, I just want to freaking play the racing part. Yeah, that the, was The it. grid
0: bug part where you're yeah, trying to run no. into the tower it was, that a, was it. a huge pain in the ass. And the tanks. It, but, and you, and it was, you know, th- those games at that time were like, here's the same four levels over and over again, but harder each time. That's it, all it did. But uh, Donkey Kong Jr., uh, I loved. And uh, I still remember the music to it. It's still. It still it haunts, haunts you. Haunts yeah. my dreams. So
1: my so my thing with video games when we first moved to Florida, there was a big video game. It wasn't. I can't even say it was an arcade. It was. It was truly like a warehouse that it was like a massive arcade. Not an arcade that you know an arcade in the mall or anywhere else would have whatever 25, 30 games. This was one that had two hundred. Like it was. It was a a place that was probably like in the Karate Kid, like that that place they have. But golf like and four stuff. of them. Yeah, like yeah, exactly golf and stuff. But it had like four. It was a castle. They called it. I think it was like something castle. I forget what it was in Florida. And they had that—remember that game they still have now where you put the coin in, and then the coin drops and has to hit other coins to make it come down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you get more coins. Yeah. So one of the things we figured out—I don't even know how— was we figured out one how to take a paperclip and rig the game and and get more things because we can unbend the paperclip and can still do it you make it like a question mark right and then you can pull the little thing down mm-hmm. you can slide it up the coins that's called and pull stealing but and yeah. that's thievery yeah but here's this is actually I'm going to explain to you robbery okay so now <laughs> here's what happens so now in that game where you put the coins on. You, we, what we do is we would lift up the entire thing. We'd take two of us because we were just little and thirteen, and we would lift it up. And there was no alarm on one of them. All the rest, of it, an alarm would sound if you it, if you pushed it because they don't want you pushing the thing to make more coins rain down. But one of them had a broken alarm, and we figured out which one it was. So we'd pick it up we'd look around and then we would drop it and, it and this thing would hit and you would get like $10 worth of coins mm-hmm. and we could stay there for like 19 hours straight because we. and I used to keep I was so obsessed with video games on a notepad like that but on a true legal pad I kept a list of every video game I played because I was planned to have the record for playing the most video games of anyone in the whole world. Oh, my God. And I used to go at just this one place, lift it up, feed my habit, and keep going.
0: Well, I think the joke was on you because all that money ended up going back into their establishment.
1: I I, I did. So uh, I think they I was probably fooling knew. The smarter thing would have been, I'm going to take their money and leave. Right. And instead, I was like, ha-ha, I'm well, going to take you your money on and give it back to the these digits. people
0: that I stole it from. You know, there was a, there was a great cheat in Galaga where... I can't remember which level it was, but I think maybe after the second stage, if you uh, if you kill everything but but leave one, I remember one you're, B, you're saying something. I remember you you leave one I know B this. left, and then you just let him keep falling and falling and falling. At a certain point, he stops firing missiles at you. And when he stops firing missiles at you, when you're sure after a couple screens he's not filing missiles anymore, you shoot him, and then nothing fires missiles at you for the rest of the game. I remember. I don't. I, I, it sounds familiar. The one that obviously took
1: my whole life was was playing Adventure on Atari. Oh, of, oh my god! One. Of course. I mean, there was no better cheat than than finding you know that invisible you know invisible thing to go into the castle to go into the castle and and find you know the the weirdly written silver glittering letters. And I remember finding that and being like. No one in the universe now knows what I know sitting at this Atari. Like, I remember just—because there was no one to tell. There was no internet. There was no—you couldn't even get the cheats. And I was explaining to my son the other day because he, you know— Listen, we we play PlayStation. That's what he loves. But I was like, you understand that when we get to a hard level, you go on the internet and you find out how to do it, and that's it. I'm like, I freaking played Zelda. I remember saying—one weekend, one Christmas break, I spent the entire Christmas break cracking Zelda— and the only thing worse than spending your entire time doing that is, is your friend who sits next to you and watches you do that, right? <laughs> like that's the only lower form of entertainment is like, is like the guy who's riding shotgun on you solving Zelda for a week of time. So I, trust me, I, I, I love that. For me,
0: for the other 2600 game that I uh, – well, besides Pitfall – but um, the, Superman, Superman,
1: I, I have the. I mean, I really felt like I had the world record, and, and because uh, you figure
0: out, I could still quickly, do. By the way, I could still do it. I can't remember. Oh, I, I can't remember, remember what all the. I can't remember what all the screen. Oh, I
1: remember going back forth, and then you went back forth again, and I could do it. In, I think it was like nineteen or twenty nine. I forget what it was seconds. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember it because it would give you the number, and I'd be like, I did this in nineteen seconds. There's no one on this
0: planet that's beating me at Superman. I don't know if I got down to nineteen seconds, but I think I. It uh, was like nineteen or twenty nine. It was I th- some th- I nine th- number. I, th- I think I was around thirty seconds. Seconds, yeah. because once you figured out what the screen map was, you catch that guy, catch that of guy, catch that guy. Right, fly. you got Dagley up this, yeah. this way, yep. and then Lex Luthor, and then and the helicopter. And then, but you could take a picture if you took a picture of the screen, you could send it in. To was that an Activision game? Uh, I think you know what I'm trying to remember. It.
1: it, it I don't know if it was an Activision game. But the, Pitfall was the
0: Activision. Whoever, I don't know if it was actually whoever made it. Maybe it wasn't Activision, it might I don't have think been Activision. It was Atari. But um but you could send it into them and, and then you know they like they you? had those video game magazines and stuff that they were published I I had a subscription like you with your with your with your windscreen um but uh really that, who I mean, was like, the winner there? That was and a lot of that <laughs> a lot of that came from my grandfather, Jim, who had you know he was a he was a technophile and so mm-hmm. He had a laserdisc player in 1979. Yeah, you know, that was the measure. If you had a
1: laserdisc player, like you had stuff that no one else had.
0: He also had Betamax. He also yeah. had um, a tracks. He had all. He had everything. He had a. He had an amazing hi-fi system. He I remember had, Mark Taustein's
1: had a. I had a laser disc system, and I remember that in 1977, that summer of Star Wars, his father built him for this camp uh, talent show an R2-D2 that he got into. His dad was really handy and he got physically into it and then had and a died. thing came up. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, he has an R2-D2. <laughs> like it was just the most mind-blowing, like again, before the toys were even out, before there was anything, Mark Taustin had this thing. It was the greatest. Fucking Mark Taustin. Mark Taustin against me again. he has it every time. But he, And LaserDiscs. But you know what he also gave me was, Was Garfield comic books? I remember he was the first guy who had Garfield. Remember when the little books, the little long books? Oh, yeah. And he was the first one who had those, and he would give them to me. And he was my pusher of Garfield comics.
0: I mean, what else? You know, basically, uh, those little comic books were essentially, you know, because the 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 bathroom was my library. So I read more comic books. I read more Farsides on the toilet. (laughs) Oh yeah. Then. and Calvin and Hobbes, and but the. Listen, um, I'm,
1: I love Calvin so much. I'm doing books like that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how much it made me crazy.
0: But my grandfather also he didn't just have an Atari 2600. He also had an Intellivision, and a ColecoVision, like he had. Yeah, all these no. See, platforms. if to me, if you had Atari, then you had you skipped Intellivision,
1: and then you got Coleco. Like I had a Coleco, <laughs> right? But if you had Intellivision, it's because you were too late to get Atari, and that meant your parents didn't love you as much. In my eyes. <laughs> like that meant that, like I'm not, and I remember my, I I'll never forget what the that that year, uh, you know, it was Christmas, Hanukkah presents, and. All I wanted was Atari. That was all I wanted. That was it. All I wanted was Atari. And my parents, who um, they went to the Toys R Us, and they came back, and they said we they were sold out. We're sorry. There's no Atari. And I was crushed. And I was just like, what do you mean there's no Atari? And they're like, we went to three different stores. No Atari. And they said, we got you this. I hope you like it. And they handed me this box, and I was like, what is this piece of crap? And I opened it up, and it was an Atari and I lost my Uh, mind and it was the greatest thing ever and I just recently did that to my daughter and I did it to my son I constantly, like whatever it is that thing that they're like please dad, like we just did it with a a, Let me ask
0: you a question though because this this does strike an interesting moral dilemma which is if your kid all of a sudden becomes an unrecognizably enraged asshole because they didn't get the thing they wanted (laughs) is there a threshold where you're like well, now you're not getting it because your behavior is unforgivable.
1: Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty, pretty. I'm pretty happy with just keeping my kids in a Skinner box and trying to control <laughs> their behavior with the pellets that I make them. You know, like hit the hit the line for. <laughs> so i I'm, I make peace with that. I'm fine with it. I feel like that's what my dad did with me. I'm like, that's okay.
0: It's so funny now that our that our uh, that, that the G, the Gen Xers now are in the. In my day, I mean, All like you know, like I, you know, like I, you know I'm, I'm, I was playing Witcher three over the weekend. Like, I mean, I can't even, you know, when, like, still, even when video games first started, you, your imagination still had to fill in some of the Something. pieces oh, because, yeah. like you said, adventure, which is, you know, well, you were a, fucking a
1: paw, dot. Paw. They would say on the back of an adventure, it would say you are a warrior with a sword, and dragons will get you. And then you put it on, and you were a dot. Yeah, you were a yellow dot, and you said there I am. I'm a warrior. You know, like and
0: you just imagine <laughs> well, well, it all. Com- coming out of Pong, adventure, sure, anything was, that Ad- moved, adventure right. was our generation's version of a sandbox oh, game. Oh yeah. <laughs> Where you like, you can move it off
1: the table. Oh, yeah. I just spoke to Scott Goldstein who I bought Pong for, for his birthday. And I just found him. He found me on Facebook and was like, man, you bought me Pong. And I was like, oh, I did buy you Pong. And, like, that's great. I don't care about it. That's good. God. But, yeah, I do play, like, what, right now, of course. Listen, want to sound like real old men. I go, my son's playing now, and I walk in, and I'm like, oh, what game are you watching? Because I think he's watching a real basketball game, and he's playing, you know, and he's playing NBA, you know, whatever it is,
0: 2015. And I'm like, oh, that's,
1: that's, you're playing that? Like, in my day, we were a
0: dot. Yeah. <laughs> Until, uh, until Dragon's Lair and Space Ace came along. But the
1: thing about Dragon's Lair and Space Ace, and and even then, of course, the Dom Bluth animation so great. Was, lost my mind. But it was still even then I remember being like, I'm not really controlling it. I'm just moving a direction, and well, then it and plays once a you new figure one. out the patterns, the it's pa- done. and So to me, like I love that, but I never really fell for it in the way that I fell for anything else because I didn't feel like I had real control. I couldn't really make him run wherever I wanted. I just had to know if I go this way, I'm going down the well, and I die.
0: This, uh, this uh, you can file this in a way uh, along with the other stories of uh, reasons why Chris Hardwick was not popular in grade school. Please, as really?
1: opposed to my stories, I'm telling you how cool I was. You know, stealing quarters. Like this was my entire.
0: <laughs> it w- We had to give speeches in sixth grade about, like, we had to give, you know, a speech... It was for a speech class, about, you know, you had to sure. give a speech about... It. It's something you're an expert on. And my speech was a demonstration on how to beat Dragon's Lair. And so... Uh, <laughs> I have no problem with that. <laughs> no one else was interested in that. It turns out sixth grade girls are not interested in beating Dragon's Lair. So,
1: when I'm in twelfth grade, and you're supposed to be interested in girls, and, that, you know, you really... Forget about sixth grade, you really want girls... My speech and debate final was about why Superman is the greatest superhero. And I'm like, that's fine. Like in sixth grade, I give you that. I'm literally in 12—I'm 18 years old at this point, and I'm yes, still doing Yes, but you it.
0: went on to write comic books, no, and so— and
1: listen, I, I find, Again, there's nothing nerdy about loving what you love. That's it.
0: I'm okay with it. Yeah, I, I'm really glad that—you uh, know, I'm really glad that something didn't deter me from being into the things that I—I I mean, you know, I, I, I I— I, I would try to hide it every once in a while because it was a source of great – it was a source of gr- of sadness to me because in a pre-internet world, you just couldn't really connect with any more than like three people. Right. You, I was the only kid in my school that read comics. And then there were there
1: were maybe like two other kids that I can remember, Scott Kohler who would lift the machine with me and another and one other kid who liked video games. And to find those kids, were, it was a lifeline, right? To find someone else who was like you – and I remember going even to camp and finding that one kid who also liked comics, and I was like, "Oh there's two of us like that was a miracle
0: you know what I it, what's what's kind of interesting now is how when we were growing up if if someone used the word nerd, it was in a derogatory way sure. and now what's funny is how it's flipped and how people are saying you're not a real nerd right, Like right, they're right. using it like they're using the reverse as a way to demean you of course and and it bo- it bothers me when people say that to me it's like you don't fucking know me but at the same time it also kind of weirdly satisfies me because now the reverse is being used to shame people and i think that's kind of, there's something it kind of cool right about out. that
1: but the you know but it begs the question right the, the greatest question that we can well maybe there're better questions but i'll ask it is that when you How do love we something, cancer? Right, I was going to oh, no, 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 no. say. Talk is, about this okay, one, right? okay, I was sure. just going to say. I, okay. I I I myself to death, but <laughs> the but I well, really, when when your culture is based on being an outsider and no one liking what you like, when everyone likes what you like, does it take away from your culture?
0: Um, it it depends. I'll tell you. My my response to this is. Uh, it depends on why you like those things. Well some, said. Some Very people, well said. That's right. If some people are more obsessed with being fringe, then it's going to bother them. Of course. If you like something because it possesses qualities that you identify with, then it doesn't matter. Because right. I don't care. You know, fucking great that Comic-Con's 150,000 people, and great, you know, I don't care that there's fringe people there who may not know every Doctor Who episode. You know, like, if if it supports the culture and it makes people more comfortable about Like liking what they like and being able to be public about that, I'm a big supporter of it because I was always ashamed growing up because it was not – it was – you know we were socially ostracized. And so now I feel like, yeah, great, strength in numbers, fantastic. Yeah, see, for me, I actually was never ashamed by it. Maybe I just was like not as,
1: as socially aware as you were when you were little, but I never had shame in it. I just knew that that was my thing. Like I remember going and we were on a camp walk. And it was a two-mile camp walk, um, and and the Jews, we don't walk more than a mile without complaint, right? <laughs> so it was a two-mile. It was too far. It was really hot. It was a summer. And basically, uh, I remember going to—we stopped at a 7-Eleven, and my parents had given me a dollar. Everyone got a dollar to kind of, like, get a drink. And I remember going into the 7-Eleven, and there was a spinner rack, and I, I saw the YooHoo, and I was like, oh, I need a YooHoo, I'm dying. I'm really thirsty. And then I saw the spinner rack, and it had a Justice League of America— at the end of a of a double part story where the Justice League and the Justice Society fight the Secret Society of Supervillains. And I remember going, I could have that YooHoo, or I can have that comic. And I'm dying of thirst here. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna read that comic, and I'm gonna drink the backwash of every person's here, you know, like of their YooHoo. But like to me, everyone there knew that when everyone came out with soda, I was the guy walking out with a comic and I didn't care. Everyone knew that's the thing that Brad's gonna go do. Well,
0: I I think you were you were fortunate because uh for whatever reason, there were there were a lot of bullies in my school. I mean, like a lot of, you know...
1: Wait, where were you? Where, I forget. Where, where Memphis. You I went to Memphis. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, Memphis. You're screwed. I went yeah. to a very small... Right. I was, right. I was very in very Brooklyn
0: where like... Oh, okay. You
1: know, like well, you had to defend yourself and you had to get in one fight because you had to prove you could survive. But once you get into one fight and if you... Then I was left alone.
0: No, our school was very small. There were only a few hundred students there and it was K through 12, so it was very small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, and, uh, and so... It, th- there was a lot of merciless public shaming yeah, because that, that, sure you're different. You know, well we had one room that had um, it was the computer lab. So there were like we were fortunate enough that even in the mid '80s we had a bank of Apple IIe computers, and uh, it was also the chess club, and it was also the math club, and it was also where we played D and D, and it was and so it was uh, it. it we were easily identifiable in a small grouping of people, and to be into nerdy shit in the South yeah, in, no, no, at that time, that. It, right. was, it was a lot of, and not being sport, like, I had to play, I had to play sports, in seventh and eighth grade, I had to play sports with the fifth and sixth graders, and so that sort of... <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't even play sports, I remember
1: my dad made me play Little League and one year, and, and I found that actually when he, when my mom died, I know I played one year, but I never knew, I knew I didn't like it, but I just thought I quit. And when my mom died, my dad said to me, it was your mother who basically came and was like, Stewie, leave him alone. And she knew. Like, she protected me from that. She was like, he's, that's not his thing. He's never going to do that. And my dad always would have rather been buying, like, baseball cards. Like, I think when he got me, my dad was like a, a big kind of, like, Brooklyn mobster type. Like, he'd be like, hey, how you doing? How you doing? How you doing? Like, he was just, that's who he was. And I think when he got me, like, he's like, oh, I, I got the kid who likes to read. Oh, man, I got the gay one. You know, like, he just had right. no idea what to make of me. Like and but to his credit, when he would have been rather be buying baseball cards, he he was he used to work as a manager of a greeting card store in Penn Station, and there was a little bookstore there where you can grab like you know whatever a couple books for five dollars. But he would always buy me comics, Aww. and I love that you know he that was the one thing he he knew I he would have rather been doing something else,
0: but he would feed my little habit. I think that's probably the best thing you can do as a parent. I would imagine is being tuned in enough to your kid to go hey. I don't understand what this thing is that you're into, but I know you like it, and, and that's how my it. parents were with me. They that's knew right. I loved comedy, so they bought me every comedy album they knew I loved video games, so they you know like they 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 fed that habit and uh and I feel like that's the i feel like recognizing an aptitude or or a desire for something in your kid and helping to foster that is is the best thing that you can do, even if you don't get it
1: right so now tell me what you're doing this so i'm on I'm on book tour right now at the at the second stop in washington d c I, ha- I actually brought my kids with me just because we used to live in Washington. We were going to go see family friends, so I'm at the book signing. I'm, you know, there's a nice line waiting, and my son walks up, my youngest son, and he's got all this money and change. And I'm like, "Where'd you get all the money?" And he says, "Oh, from these people." Oh. And I turn around, and basically, the woman says, "Oh, yeah, he's charging us uh, to draw pictures for him because he wants to save up for the Lego Death Star." <laughs> and now I'm like, "You can't charge our readers!" But then I'm like but that's actually brilliant. Like, he's giving, he's providing said, a he's service. a service, right? And I said to him, and, and I said, I, I have to promote that. Like, that's where I came down to me. I'm like, you know what? I know he's bilking the readers and playing on their, like, sympathy because he's cute and adorable and the Lego Death Star is something worthy of buying, but I'm like, have, you know, and you see, my wife was like, "You can't do that. You got to wait." He came up
0: with a resourceful way. I was to, like, to "Go pay for,
1: to it, man!" He didn't just ask you for the money, right? He could have said, "Give me the money," and we purposely listen. I can buy him the Lego Death Star, right? I want him to have something that he knows is the Atari but of if his that age.
0: Desire forces him to discover that he likes to draw. Awesome, right? And, and he's drawing, him. right? That's
1: what I feel. I'm like, keep drawing, man. Do whatever you want. And so he sits there, and I was like, that's exactly where I netted out. I was like, you know what? Although the next night, I said. So we're, now we're in—, uh, we it's, were not in like, it's not like it's
0: three-card Monty. Right, right, right.
1: Like, keep your eyes, kids. Keep your eyes. And so now the next night I say, how about this, though? How about we do drawings for people, but you do it out of kindness? And he literally stands up. I did it during the q as I'm telling the story, and he goes, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that, I'm like, respect for how that, How old too. is he? Seven. 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 You know, I was just thinking of another point. But he's going to be an agent, clearly, because the kid is just working the the angles. He know he gets he know, it. No, totally he's, gets it. He's
0: he's he's a little he's a little grifty.
1: Oh, yeah. No, as long as he gets out Lego death star.
0: I was I was thinking about your earlier question, and it, it's starting to chew away at me even more, and I'm starting to get annoyed. It's with a question that someone asked only... me
1: at Comic Con. That question
0: I asked you about about. Does it, you like. yep. Would you like it if... And here's what I would say. It,
1: and I will tell you, that was 10 years ago. And it, that question still, I, I come up with a new answer every day for that well, question. Well, because
0: people... Uh, the people who complain about it would argue... People who would say, well, everyone likes it now, so it's not cool anymore. Those people would argue that the fringe nerd, like the, the people that are just coming in and experimenting with it are posers. Oh, well, you're that's trying to be- Right,
1: they don't not like it anymore. They're mad that someone likes it. It's like when your parents like the band that you like. Right. When your parent- when mom says, oh, I love your new band, you're like, that's not my favorite band But I
0: anymore. would argue that those people that don't like it anymore because it's gotten popular are the actual posers because they are the ones... Oh, that's
1: clear, for that- sure. Because they the- they're, they're just liking it because they're of the popularity be- yeah. factor.
0: But I will, say, I will say this, too. It's sort of like, you did just make the point of... You know, your parents liking something and in this – especially in this sphere of pop culture, people do attach their identities to things. And so when they see people they don't like, they feel like, well, I don't want to have anything in common with you, so fuck this. But that to me says, well, then you don't really like the thing for right. what it is. of course. If someone if someone affects your liking right? You're liking there, it, you're you're liking life, it right. as a means to an end not That's because right. you enjoy it.
1: Well, the question to me is if no one were watching, would you still do it? right. That's the question, right? Like, what would you do if no one knows, no one's, like, and that's what you love. Like, when when nothing else around you could choose one thing, what do you choose? And for me, it's always been the same stuff. Like, because, again, you know, think about it. When I was, when I first started writing novels, um, the only person who was doing comics was Kevin Smith and then me. Like, (laughs) I mean, it was the two of us. And I was just talking about it. And I said, I said, you know, you were the first guy on the beach and I was the guy behind you. But, like, I remember all the novelists at the time said to me, why are you slumming in comics? and I was like slumming this is all I love comic like I, I, this is the best and then now of course 10 years later they're all like they come to me because they say hey can you introduce me to DC and Marvel and I'm like I'm the I'm the drug dealer for you know to like make the introduction but I love the fact you know that you can see it's just pure like those people who were there in the beginning they weren't there was no money there was no fame it wasn't cool and it was actually like potentially people felt bad for my career and I was like I don't care I'm doing it I love this thing
0: yeah and that's ultimately when you know if you're doing the right thing That's or it. not. I'm like, and the same thing with like even the kids books. I'm like, I'm, if I was smart, I shouldn't be
1: doing them, but I love them. This is my, I get my history nerd on. Like I can get that going.
0: No, it's never, it's never a bad idea to do things that are meaningful to you. That's always the smartest idea because people can tell, you know, when you, so this Lucille Ball book, people know that the person who made this being you really gives a shit about it.
1: Right, because who else would ever... It, let's put it this way. She's been around for like... Uh, it was a 100th anniversary of her birth. There is no kids' book for Lucy. There's none. And, and not because I was like, oh, I found a hole in the market. They, I found that out because the publisher was like, you do realize when they were doing the marketing, there isn't one. I'm like, I don't know. I just thought uh, there must have been a lot. People can tell
0: that you care about this. I love you, it. It's very can, clear. So yeah. I think... You Know as much as we try to hammer the point home to people, like just do the stuff that you it makes you happy. You know, it it really is there. It, it's you can never, I feel like you can mostly, well, unless you're like a murder enthusiast, you can mostly never go wrong, but maybe they can go really right if they do something. <laughs>
1: <really>. <laughs> Dexter hunted other murderers, right? Tell it. I was gonna say, tell that to, to Jeff Lindsay, yeah. Um, but yeah, listen, I there's no question, and 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 I think. You know, one of the things that people ask me is I sometimes get a question, and, and I, I this is one that actually someone asked me. They said, Dear Brad, like, I have two books I want to write, and one of them is going to be a great Hollywood thriller, and I know it's going to, like, I can sell it to the movie rights, and, and I know it's a high concept, and I can pitch it great, and it's got to, you know, it's going to make a million dollars as a great movie. And the other one, I'm obsessed with the Druids, and I love the Druids, and I know it's this obscure kind of arcane thing, but I just love the Druids. I don't know if anyone's going to buy something from the Druids. you got to write about the Druids. And I said, well, which book should I write? And I've quite, I'm like, you must write the book about the Druids. Do yeah. not for one second. Because the X factor on everything you create is whether the writer loves what they're doing. Sure. And that's it. Like when you read something that you go on page one or when you see a movie that you see in the first minutes, you're just like, when it grabs you by your esophagus and you're just are like, oh my gosh, we're on this train ride and the bullet train's moving, it's because that writer, creator, whatever it is you're doing, you know, even video game designer— loves it and can't wait to let that train leave the station and to me I'm like dude I can't wait to read your druids book it's gonna be awesome because you love this mad crazy ass thing that no one else knows about
0: because people are gonna people can sense when something is writing from someone's writing from an authentic place and you're getting information because that person really understands and they really understand because they really give a shit about it
1: Um, and and listen for me for for the, the novel for the president's shadow I mean I so, I, you know, listen, it opens up with a, with the first ladies in the Rose Garden. She, and it's all fiction, obviously. It's a thriller, but she, you know, every first lady I've ever met, they all want just normalcy.
0: That's it. They just want their life back. How many first you know? ladies have you met?
1: Uh, two. Really? Yeah. i, I would tell you. have to tell you the story. This is a good story. Okay. Okay, so here's a story. So, and then we'll get back to president Yeah, China. yeah. So, basically, years ago, uh, I got letters from Bill Clinton that had said that they, you know, he had written me a letter. I always thought it was from someone who, a friend who worked there that was like throwing me a bone. But then one day, I, I opened my mail. And it's a letter from uh, George H. W. Bush, and my first thought is this is clearly fake because I used to be an intern for the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I used to always use the pen signing machine and write to my friends and tell them they were being deported. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and like, and I will tell you, like in Miami, that works too. Like that oh, totally works in Miami, right? <laughs> like, shit. and so. Basically, I was like, "This is clearly a friend playing a prank on me. This is not." From-. And I, and in fact, call the president's office. I look up the number and found President Bush's office, and I'm like, um, "Some intern there like wants to get a free book. I just want to make sure." And they're like, "Oh, you got the president's letter." I'm like, "Wow, he's really bored. Like, right? I mean, the president's <laughs> like, you're a past president. You're." And so I said to him, "Can I come see what your life is like?" Because I, I mean, imagine Chris, if someone told you that you peaked, that everything you're going to do tomorrow from this moment on, is downhill from everything you've done. And that's what it is when you leave the White House, right? You peak. You, you. Every day of your life will be less exciting than these four to eight years that you just lived. And I was fascinated as a character for that. I was like, that's crazy, right? You know. In fact, the first thing you do when you leave the White House is they ask you to plan your own funeral. Oh. Which is just devastating, right? That's like the perfect metaphor. And so I said, can I see what your life is like? And he said, why don't you come to Houston, Texas for the week? And I was like... Uh, okay, I'll come there. In fact, and 10 days ago, I got invited to Barbara Bush's 90th birthday party. Wow. And so I'm like—and they say—and it's, it's a bipartisan thing. It was raising money for literacy. They invite Democrats, Republicans. Everyone goes. And, uh, and they say to me, they're like, you know, Barbara Bush, they, they, you know, her and her staff picked out four authors to come entertain. And I was like, wow, who'd you get? And they're like, dummy, it's you. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll be there. And and at one point we're standing and it's me and we're in two little rooms that are basically the size of the room we're in right now, two of them. And it's Barbara Bush, George Bush— Laura Bush and W. Jeb Bush, my wife and I. My wife looks at me. She's like, "At what point did your life become Forrest Gump?" You know, like, <laughs> and you can't take the moment seriously, right? It's like obviously not like. And, and some- my father-in-law
0: does have a shrimp company. He
1: does, and, and fried chicken. Let's yeah. not forget to sell fried chicken. But at one point, um, someone turns around and smashes into my wife accidentally because it's just close quarters and you're in this small house. And my wife whips around because she's like, "Who just hit me?" And she's face to face with W. And I'm like. This is going to be the greatest fight of all time. Like, this is going to be like Jimmy Snuka and Hogan. Like you know, this is going to fight versus the Iron Sheik. Like, and uh, but obviously, that's what I put into my books. But why do I get to do it? Is like because I love the White House. I'm obsessed with it. So when I when I do the start of the President's Shadow, and, and you're sitting there, and the First Lady's in the White House, and she puts her hands into the dirt and she smells the mulch, and out of the dirt she pulls a severed arm. Like, okay, that's fine. I can make it up, but. I go to the Secret Service who love what they do, and I'm like, what would you do? Here's fiction, and they'll help me because they love fiction. They're sick and tired of seeing movies that have it wrong, and the guy says to me, the first thing I do is I would redecorate a room. I'm like, what does that even mean? He's like, I redecorate a room at the White House. I put paint on the one wall. I take wallpaper off another. Now I can move the first family out of the White House, get them across the street for three days, and now I can investigate, and no one will know what I'm doing, and the press won't know what I'm up to. And I'm like... That sounds like you've done that before, you know. And <laughs> no, he, no, no. We're just no, speaking it just hypothetically. hypothetically. Talking and, about? And, but he said to me, as I like, think of it, he's like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama have redecorated rooms in the White House. You won't believe what's been done here in the name of home renovation. And I'm like, now listen. Obviously, I love that because it helps me with the book. But that's my thing that I'm so passionate about that I'm like I, I'm gonna figure out how to make this work in a book because that's the coolest thing I've heard like this month and and I will make the whole book work around that nerdy thing that I don't know if anyone else is gonna think is cool, but to me is is just the best and it's it's politics like there's nothing less you know that's more dry than that
0: so was this time this time where George W. Bush physically assaulted your wife was this when you got invited to Houston?
1: No, this was actually like ten days ago. I oh, was, this was there. 10 this days was literally ago. just ten days ago. So what happened when you got invited? When to I Houston? got invited to Houston, that was actually like a research trip, and I spent nearly a week in Houston with the Bushes. The best part was this is I never tell the story. So, but um, so I go, and I don't even think the Secret Service is realizing why I'm there. Like, because they're just like, who's this? Like, pasty have you white talked guy? to the
0: president at this point? Oh yeah, you no. Know,
1: when I met President Bush, the, he spent the first ten minutes trying to convince my wife that he invented the phrase "you to man." <laughs> That's a quality. This is a George, Bush joke. Sr. George Bush Senior. George Bush Senior, like the one who's like ninety three. I'm like, that's a quality joke. And my wife is like, you know, Brad. He invented Udemy. I'm like, no, he didn't. He's lying to you. Like he's lying to your face. But I'm like, you gotta respect the joke, right? I respect a good joke anywhere. And so I, I, I sit with him. He invites me into the house. And at one point, we're watching TV. I'm just watching TV just to see what he's watching because I'm like, what is a president who's left the White House? What does he watch? And at that point in time, it was wild because he his son was president at the time. And he, he hates the news. Why? Because his kid is getting beat up on it every day. Like, you think you were bullied? Like, his kid's getting bullied on national television, every newspaper on the front page every day. And you're like, wow. Like, no matter what you think, no matter what your politics are, like, if someone's beating up your boy, that sucks. Yeah. Like, you can't watch. So I'm watching, like, he likes sports. He likes, you know, he likes going to Blockbuster when Blockbuster is around and, like, checking out movies. And, he, and I'm like, and it's just a wild experience. But at one point, he says... You know, I think I'm going to say goodbye and, like, thanks for a great day. And he's like, you know, we're going to dinner. Get in the car. So I jump into the black Suburban. And usually, again, they drive alone. And I go in the staff car is what you're supposed to do. And you go in a different car. And he goes, just get in the car. So you don't say no when the president says get in the car. So I jump in the black Suburban. And I jump in the way, way back because it's like a three-row seat thing. And there's two Secret Service agents in the front seat. There's George and Barbara Bush in the middle seat, and I'm in the back, like knees to my chest, like, (laughs) Hi guys, here I am. And I'm like, and the Secret Service is looking at me like, who is this guy and how do why is he here? And it's just because, you know, no one's gonna stop when the president
0: says something. But yeah, no, no. Did you have a morbid sense of just to make a bad joke? Oh
1: no, not even morbid sense. Like all I'm gonna shoot you. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. All you think is like how much damage can I do? Because you're just like you've never been this close, right? Like I mean you all you think is like not not in like that you ever want to hurt anyone, but you just think of like what am I gonna mess up here? Because it's like Well I'm your so brain close. your
0: brain goes to those places of like course, you yeah. better not make that joke or you but it's the same thing that I it's the same thing that I have being afraid of heights where I go what if I jump? You know what I mean? It's right. that it's that horrible what if the worst case scenario happens?
1: All you think is what if I do the wrong thing here? Like what if I trip and accidentally knock into him? Like that's all I'm thinking is like, don't knock him over, don't you know, don't trip, don't fall. Because when you meet a president, and, and maybe I don't know, maybe it's like meeting like your favorite movie star, but in that moment, you have a story to tell the rest of your life. Right, because all of time slows and whatever the moment is happening, even if it's just a hello, or like even you know, watching Mark Marin do with the Obama thing, like right, like Obama comes in and he says to Mark Marin, like, Hey ma'am, you know, you got a lot of pictures of yourself on the wall. <laughs> I will promise you one thing that will haunt Mark Marin. Forever, I, pro- I don't know, Mark. I don't know anything about that. Will ha- when the president of the United States says you got too many pictures of yourself on your wall, you, you have to be haunted forever. I can tell you everything a president's ever said to me because you just don't forget it. And, like, it's the president, man. I don't care if you like him, don't like him, respect him, voted for him or not. It's awesome.
0: Did being friends— with him, affect- friends, you
1: know, friends, because you know, we have a a, a best friends charm that we broken in half. You have a best friends charm. Have to have broken and half, and he, he has extends, the other side. He yeah, extends, yeah, yeah.
0: Did did it affect your politics at all? Did it? No, did, okay.
1: no, no. My I thing, I, no. To me, it's not like when I do my research, it's solely about like making my book. To, you know, getting the details I want. But I will say what I did learn. I ne- you know what? This is, this is actually a good question. This is a perfect thing for this, for especially on the creative side. I could never write a president. I never. I wrote a book called The First Council, where the plot of the book was about a, a first daughter, the president's daughter, who goes out for a wild night on the town and gets into trouble. The president never has, I think, a line of dialogue in the whole book. It's set in the White House. Her dad's the president, but I, I was like, I couldn't write it because. It was like a cliche. It was like writing a doctor and saying stat. You know, I need something stat. Like, right. it, All I could see was like, yes, sir, no, sir, right away, sir. And it just wasn't a real character. It wasn't until I met a president—and um, I've met, you know, I've literally met at this point everyone since Bush. So I've met both Bush's and Clinton and Obama. But it's not until I met them that I was like, oh, you're a human being. Like, oh, you make jokes and you're worried about the same dumb crap we are. And, and yes, you can let it roll off better and you can hide it better and you can be in control better. But like— Now I got it. Like, what every president is really good at is their superpower is they can get you to do what they want you to do. That's how you get elected president. That's their core thing. But at base, they're human beings. And you realize, like, they hate when someone goes and makes a joke about them, and they hate when when they get a bad number, and they hate when—you know, even, like, all of us, even when your enemy says something bad about you, you still feel upset. Yeah. Right? Like, or at least I do. I've revealed myself. But, like— to me, once you realize the humanity behind it, I, the only thing it changes about me is the politicians who I used to hate—and there are some I still hate—but, like, you do realize, like, y- your, your venom level has to go down because you realize at the end of the day they're all sitting on the same or reading the same old Garfield, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah,
0: and the thing is when people say shitty things about you and then you get up—you—you— you, you, Forget that people get upset, but isn't that better? Like, do you want someone who's a complete sociopath and totally – like someone who who is not affected by anything other people say? Right. He's a dangerous right. person.
1: <laughs> don't give him the button, right? Like, don't <laughs> do that. they just do whatever they want, of and course. they feel no like, consequences. Right, right, right. I mean, that's – the and, and the thing is, is you – that's what we – the best part of every president is they're us, Right, and every human being and every character i've realized that I've written, and it's why my characters have changed over the years is every one of us is awful and amazing and brave and cowardly and incredible and and terrible, and we are sometimes all on the same day, every one of us and it, and to me, once you realize that and figure it out, like your venom of like he's the worst person ever, or I bet even like listen when you go on you know that big show, whether it 's you know. The Oscars or anything else, and you and you feel whatever venom you feel. Or when I get a review that comes out in USA Today saying something bad about me, you can't hate anyone in the same level that you used to hate when you were twenty one years old, (laughs) right? Because you just know that how it feels to you. Sure. Like, and someone said to me, you know, every bad review feels like your mother said it, and I still believe that. But on some level. You know, you get better at just one, letting it roll off, but two, you get you you become a little less vengeful in your heart.
0: I really do. Yeah, and and but but I do think that uh... except for the ones who said it, and those people will pay.
1: <laughs> 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 oh, you well, know what? Oh, you know what? At Bobby on uh, at Jumbo's, he used to have a, a death wall, and in Jumbo's in the back, if you wronged him or d- or owed him money, he would put you on the death wall. And as far as I was concerned, that was the best kind of thing. And and the best was is that people actually on the death wall started dying. Oh, shit. And that was awesome. Like, that's when you're like, the death wall works. <laughs> like, don't go near <laughs> the death wall. Or Bobby was killing people. Or he was a uh, and, then, and then it was not actually and magically, chicken you Chicken crumbs uh, <laughs>
0: always at the I wonder why this scene. chicken has such a specific flavor to it. But I wonder, just because I feel like the expectations of a president are impossible. I mean, it's like people want someone who can make decisions and sort of be inhuman, but also if they don't seem human, the people are like, oh, he's not a real... Like, there's no... It is... You can't win. No there's, president there, wins. There, That's there, exactly there, it. There's no way to win. And, uh, and I think famous people in general, in a lot of cases, there's no way to win because people just... They'll see kind of a two-dimensional representation and take whatever smattering of facts they can cobble together to build an image of, oh, that guy. Yeah, I like that guy. Or fuck that guy. I don't like the guy. It's sort of like... Sort of like hosting the Oscars, I think, where it's like, well, what's the upside? It's a thankless job. Most people are going to shit on you. That's right. And what's the what's the point of what's the point of doing it? Why bring? I would. I think I would just never want to be president because I'd feel like, oh, it's fucking gross. Well, that's Too why much. the job. I'm
1: saying, that's the thing is, it's a or, suck do, do job. you have to be a little crazy it's to a, be president? It's a you have to at some point, First of all, I think anyone that works for a president to be elected has parenting issues. Like I really feel like they have a hole in their life that needs to be filled by a dad that's missing. And that's why they go around this person to like fill, you know, like when someone dies that you love with your whole heart, you have a hole in you. And the only way, you must fill that hole. And to me, the only way you fill that hole is you got to transform in some way. And you got to fill it with a person or something. Some people do it with the wrong things, whether it's drugs or alcohol. And some people try and find actually good ways to fill that hole. And I think that people who surround presidents have these holes. And presidents themselves at some point in time have to alone sit and say, you know what? I think I can run the whole world. Right. And that takes a level of amazing, you know, you can call it narcissism, you can call it like ego, you can call it whatever you want, but you got to have that thought. And that is just rough. And, and I think I, one of the things that, that Bush sent to me is he once sent me, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he left office, put a note in the Oval Office desk and left a note for for President Bush that said, "Don't let the turkeys get you down."
0: That's he left from, and then
1: and then Bush left a note for Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton left one for W and W left one for Obama. It's the greatest hidden tradition of the modern presidency. There's always a note when you get to the office. It's, it's always
0: it's always different,
1: and it's always different. And and I asked uh, President Bush about the note, and and I opened up my email, and he actually it said the president wants you to have this, and he actually sent me the note he left for Bill Clinton. <sighs> And no one had ever seen it. His biographers hadn't seen it. They were like, why'd you give it to the schmuck who writes fiction? You know, like, I'm like, I don't even know why he gave it to me. But when you read the note, and it's actually a super generous note. Like, it's actually like, we're rooting for you, and the country's rooting for you. But the thing that's fascinating about it is that the only thing he mentions twice in the note is basically like, the press is going to come after you. And it's very clear that here you are, the most powerful person on the planet, and it still stings to him. That you're no way prepared for the beating you're about to take for the next four years to eight years. And even if you think about what Reagan said, don't let the turkeys get you down. He's still saying, like, you're gonna take a beat, you think you're taking a beating, you have no idea what is coming.
0: It's, it's almost like it's almost like <laughs> it's almost like a regeneration, like, you know, <laughs> this is what you gotta know. Right. But and 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 it's gotta be way worse. I mean, I'm not even gonna say it's gotta be. It is way worse because as an entertainer, it's not like my decisions affect people people living or dying sure. livelihood you know where funding is going it's just sort of like no no lives are relying no, no on any of it, us right no one every every day you have to you know there is a godlike thing whereas a president you i mean and i think it's you know determining how much power the president really has well, I, think I think that's is, the humbling part I of the, think of that, the office i think they finally realize, wait you have far less. Than you, you really think don't. You do. I mean, like you can sort of influence trends. You can influence certain things. You can be in... You're you're kind of you're more of an influencer a figurehead influencer i think than someone who's like we're going to do this and we're going to knock down right, these walls an and we're going to right, you, you know can't because do you that. still have these giant other l- l- bodies of especially government especially
1: now i mean the the fight that goes on but yeah you have to have a healthy ego
0: but it is it, there is something of you know when you do throw your weight behind something you know that a percentage of people are going to get fucked over by that i mean what a mind fuck
1: that's got to be um, i mean listen you have people who are coming to you saying like I lost my job because of you. Yeah. Right? You are the one reason my my kid can't pay for college or for healthcare or that's the reason my kid died. I mean, I mean people tell me people tell me
0: that I ruined walking dead because of right, talking dead right, and I'm like you can avoid that. That doesn't right, even affect right, you. Right. Imagine if you're the president. Right, that's the thing. And you you cut funding on something and someone comes to you. Oh uh, no, says no, listen. You,
1: I've been blamed for ruining comics and I've ruined, you know, history and I, I get blamed for ruining everyone gets blamed for like you put yourself out there in this culture now. You're going to ruin something for and something. I have ruined something,
0: and the be- I think you actually we should embrace that, Brad. You know what? Be a ruiner. Ruiner, ruiner, if, and that's good. Because if you're a ruiner, then at least you're stirring shit up, and then people are well. That you know, the best advice anyone
1: ever gave me about that is someone said to me, <laughs> "The worst thing you can say about someone who's a creator, whatever they create, whether it you know is is someone just says it's okay.
0: It's better. To, well, it's you know again. it's this idea that I always go back to of like, you know, is it better to be polarizing than neutralizing, you know? I'm saying, and where do you come out? I am, well, I come more out on the polarizing side, but I also don't 100% believe that it's good to... Well, neutralizing is a is a much more positive word than just being like eh in the middle. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean neutralizing in the sense that there's not there there's there's not really a reaction. It just right, right. That's like, what I mean. If just that's out, right. If it
1: comes out and it just sits there, but like, I also I'd much
0: rather I'd I much rather touch someone and make them feel something. But I I don't I don't believe in bad behavior attention though. So I don't think it's good. I, I'm not someone who thinks like you know. Like you look at something, someone like Don Lemon, and you're like, "Well, I it feels like he's just trying to piss people off to get attention." And and to me, yes, it's he's polarizing, but I don't feel like that's a good thing. You right. Know?
1: Well, it, right. Listen, lighting people on fire for the sake of lighting people on fire is a different. But I'm talking about just truly, you're creating your work and you put it out there. And you know you're doing your best. That's a that's a different thing, right? Yeah. Like someone is just trying to whatever it is, whether you think they're getting attention or whether they think they just you know.
0: Because then you just become a troll.
1: That's a, that's a, of course that's a we we don't you know that's not the that's not the polarizing you need to be. But when you're just truly creating something from your heart and saying this is my best story and I'm going to put it out there, or this is my best video game, or this is the or this is the thing I love about Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or whatever it is, like I'd much rather it be out there and striking someone to say like. I hate that than having to just go out there with a thud. Yeah. I wouldn't, yeah. I mean, the thud, well, right? Well, and that's you know. the thing. It's like, if you just give it the met, I'm like— Did you read that Brad Meltzer? No. Nah, it was that's okay, fine. right? I mean, that's the worst review of all. Like, And I, and I get, re- you know, listen, we all get reviews where, of the thousands that come in, there's that one that you're like, that one's right. I can live with that one. That one is actually right. That's what I'm really not great at, and I'm going to learn from that one. And I can, I can let the others roll off. I know when, when someone says something bad and I'm like, you know, that's petty, that's stupid, that's a personal attack. I can let those all roll off. But when you see that one that's right, that's the one that really—one, gets me, but not in a bad way. To me, that's the one you should embrace— and learn from
0: how do you know which one's right you just you know what you it's, it's, it? it's a
1: supreme court definition of pornography it's you know when you see it mm-hmm. right you just know that you, we all know although we don't acknowledge it but you know what your greatest weakness is you don't you couldn't say it right now but if someone said it to you whatever it might be you'd be like that's me i do that and when you hear that you have to let your ego down and embrace that negative What's your thing. greatest weakness um I listen. I think for me, greatest weakness is again. It's hard. If you said it, I'd be like, "Yes, I'm guilty of that." But listen, I think people know. Yeah, 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 no, I'll give my Uh. um, my real one as a
0: creator. We're talking about or as a person. What are we on? Oh, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think I think you know. Let's just so you don't have to get super personal. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you say as a creator what you think? No. no, So
1: from from mine, I know that I plot first, and then I have to work hard at the character. So I know when someone says, "You know what." as, you know, he's he's a great plotter, but, you know, the character work in this scene is, you know, is totally whatever. I'm like, I gotta look at that. I gotta attack that. That's what I need to work harder at. In comics, actually, I do much better because I know those characters better, but I acknowledge, wait a minute, I need to to embrace that. And it's why in the last three books I started writing a series character because I was like, and now we got the reviews on this book have been the best reviews we've ever gotten because I've spent 1,500 pages with the same character. And I took that from people being like, the character is X-dimensional, and it needs to be fully dimensional. And I was like, I embraced that, and I was like, I'm going to work at that. So I know that that's definitely – that's not what comes naturally to me, and yeah. I've got to work harder at that.
0: Yeah. I think mine, which actually I think also bleeds into personal life, is that I completely honestly, I think I'm, I, I get too desperate to be liked. And I think it goes back to being in grade school, yeah. being into the stuff I was into – never being accepted by other kids, not knowing how to communicate with them, not knowing how to have conversations fit in with them, talk to them. Yeah, no, no, I'm you, you a know? pleaser. I, listen, we're all pleaser. Every creature is a pleaser. It's not just pleasing, but I think, you know, it's, and, and I, you know, and I've gotten a lot better about it in the last few years. As, as you get older, you start right, to, you, to you get, get a little go. more comfortable, you sure. know, but I know, you know, um, there have been a lot of times where I was like, oh, I think I just, you know, like that was me trying to be liked more than me.
1: I, I get that. I, I will tell you this. That someone said to me, I thought this was amazing, um, that whatever age you're at, when you really kind of, I don't want to say become famous, but when you when your work kind of hits the, hits the world, that you're forever trapped at that emotional age forever.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So when do you think that was for you?
1: I mean, I know it was. It was 27. That's when my first book came out. I know that I'm trapped—like, for a while, I will say, I was trapped at that for a long time, and then I had kids. And to me, once I had kids, now I could write adults. I could never write an adult, because I wasn't one. I couldn't figure <laughs> it out. I was like—and I know I'm still not. I know I—you know, because, I- again, we spent an hour just now talking about Donkey Kong, right, Junior? And, like, I could— You're
0: wearing an 8-bit Spy vs. Spy <laughs> shirt. Right,
1: right. I mean, clearly, right? I mean— so I know that's okay. I was gonna say it says the man wearing squirrels, squirrels, squirrels. Yeah, right. my,
0: my shirt is a neon. It's a neon squirrel, and it says squirrel, squirrel, squirrels. Right. Yeah. So
1: yes, thank you, Mr. Kettle. And so, <laughs> but I will say that in that to me, I'm okay with that as long as you recognize that weakness. But I do think that that's why that's still your issue because y- you basically found your voice in that thing that that hurt you, mm-hmm. and that's where you're tr- you're going to be trapped, and you have to. You have to transform. You have to you you will either transcend or you'll be stuck. And you know, that to me is the journey you're on. Like that's the journey.
0: No, And and honestly, it has gotten better in the last few years and I see it in my stand-up and I see it because and I see it the podcast really help me because when you talk this much to people, you work it out. You have to it's you, you can't you can't you can't be fake that whole time well, and that's and, a thing. You know, like you have to at a certain point you have to start opening up and talking about yourself and and when you do that, you know, there's a risk that people are gonna go, oh, I don't really like who you are. And then you go, yeah,
1: well, I don't and It's know. over. Sorry. Right, right. I don't I mean, know what to say. Well, that's the thing is, you know, for me, if you look at my first interviews I ever did, all I would do, I was like a, a, a first year baseball player, given the rookie quotes, like, I'm just happy to be here. I'm taking it one game at a time. <laughs> you know, it's just everything was good. That's all I would say in my interviews. Everything was good. And then I finally was, I don't know what it was. I, I mean, I, I, I think it was my mom dying. Like, when my mom died, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out there and just tell everyone I'm completely and utterly devastated by the loss of my mother. And when I did that, I realized, oh, I can actually share with my audience the negative thing that's going on in my life. And it's it's profoundly better for me than just going out and saying the bullshit, which everything's grand. Well, because it's honest, yeah. It's I, honest. I, I, and I, I think was... that honesty is very—and I'm sure I know on this—listen, I know you, even though we you know, we just kind of like email back and forth and whatever. I know you a long time, right? Like when we started, I guarantee you, even from the start to now, you are so much more honest about how even—you answered that last question. If I asked you 10 years ago when I first met you or however many years ago, five years ago— And said, "Tell me your weakness." You would have given me some like safe answer to make sure you weren't being judged, right? And then we—I
0: think think my dad dying changed a lot of that too, because I I realized like, oh well, outside of something you know, outside of getting cancer, what's the worst? Right. Like I just went through the worst thing you can survive without having a child. Something happened to a child, which is my father, who I was very close to, just dropped dead, and. Wow, I guess nothing like all this other stuff doesn't really fucking matter, you know. Right, well so, life like, is
1: perspective. I mean, and yeah. listen, not that all the creators out there don't, you know, let your parents die is like the way to step forward. Yeah, but I do no. think that's not what we're promoting here. But <laughs> I will say well, maybe did that, help Bruce Wayne. Right. I was, I was just gonna, gonna say, say I, I was just gonna say it did help but yeah. yeah. But Kellel had some father issues. And so but I but I remember when I when I did my, my very first book, you get your reviews. I got my second book, I got my reviews. When the third book comes out, people start reviewing, like, hey, let's look at the whole at the work. And the stranger comes through the internet websites are basically at that point first started and it says dear brad i've read three of your books now what are your issues with your father oh and i'm like and none of the books i had written were about dads like a dad appeared on 10 pages in this book 20 pages here and i was like oh i'm clearly putting shit out there that i don't even know i'm putting out your there brains just expressing, right it. and it's expressing it in a way and work that i didn't even realize and once that happened i was like of course very conscious of it but in in fact in the newest book I never pull the theme until I get to the end. Then I figure out what has been really bothering me for the two years I've been writing this novel. And, I can, and I'm like, oh, it's not this. I was worried about this the whole time. And then when I started this book, I was like, I'm going to write about something to get me over the death of both my parents. This is the first book I'm writing where start to finish, both my parents are gone. And this is going to be the book that helps me get over them. Because it's been a while. Like, it's time to get over it, man. Like, it, you got to move on. You got to grow up. You got to do your thing. And I realized as I was writing the book, I never want to get over the death of my parents. like my parents love me and they deserve to be remembered, right. And you have to do that. And when I was writing the last page of the book, listen, like any other creator, I sit there myself. I you know, I make call friends and make my little you know writer's room over the telephone and saying, "Hey, what do you think of this?" and what do you think of this?" Um, but at the end of the day, I'm the one sitting there with this book, I was sitting there. For the whole day, and I couldn't crack the last sentence of the book. I was just like, I, I just don't got it. It's just not coming. I don't know what it is. And the, and the main character in The President's Shadow is is basically looking for his dead father and trying to figure out his relationship with his father. So, I, I mean, it's not like—I'm not Sherlock Holmes here to figure out, okay, this is clearly important to me. But I, I call my wife into the office. I'm like, do me a favor. Sit here with me a little bit and just help me brainstorm, which never happens. I never do. And I throw out ideas. And she's like, no. She threw out ideas. I'm like, no. And then finally blurts out— the final sentence that's in the book. And all of a sudden, my eyes well up with tears. And I'm not one of those new-agey people who feels like, you know, there's glitter cannons everywhere and magic happens, but, like, sometimes art is magic. It just is. And it was in that moment that I'm like, oh, this is not my main character's journey. This is my journey. This is exactly what I needed about my parents. This is this is where I've been for the past, you know, seven years since my mom died, four years since my dad died. This is what I needed to learn and thank you, imaginary friend Beecher, my main character, for giving that to me. And like, and it was only because I was willing to be as honest and raw, and like, this is going to hurt me, and put it out there. And and that's how you get the last sentence of the book. Wow. And 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 I was one of those ones where I, my wife knew she she saw me like tear up, and she was like, "You needed that one." And I'm like, "I needed this one." Thank you, Beecher. And it was just one of those crazy moments. But again, ten years ago, I would have never been that honest with a reader.
0: Never. well, because the other part is that it's it's more I think it's more interesting to read something that you know is meaningful to the person who wrote it and not um, you know what I was talking about before, like you're gonna like this, right? You know because in a way, you're not going into other people's houses and going, "Hey, do you want to see this thing I got? You're inviting them in and going, "This is my experience. That's right. You enjoy it or you don't enjoy it. It, it, it almost is irrelevant. Like Whether or not you like the book is almost irrelevant to me. This is what it is. And well, ne-
1: But that takes a while to get there. It takes a while right? to like get the there. First, you know what? People always say, I like this first book best. Like, whoever you're reading, people always say, oh, I like that first book best. And why, my theory on it is, is because in that first book, when you read an author for the first time in their first novel, they don't have an audience yet. They don't know they're going to be judged, and so they're purely honest. When nobody's there and they don't know what it feels like to take a bad review or to someone say they don't like something— they'll let everything hang out because they don't realize they're letting everything hang out. And then when they write their second book and they've gotten the bad review, then they want to be liked.
0: You know, I was worried that, because I'll probably just, this is re, I'll probably shoot a special, a Sam special later in the year, early next year, and, and a lot of the stuff in the special is, uh, we'll be done. Um, the, uh, a lot of stuff in the in the new set is very personal. It's very personal. There's stuff about the death of my father in there. Sure. I promise it's funny. Uh, there's stuff about that. Sounds my hysterical, my yeah. There's stuff about dealing with anxiety. There's stuff. About, and at first, I got worried, like, oh man, you know, if I do this, and then if people hate it, am I going to feel personally attacked because it really is very much who I am and things that are you know like a part of sure. really huge. Yeah, yeah, no, you. And you know, even in just talking to you, and just the way that I've been writing lately, I kind of realize like, oh, you know, I, I feel somewhat impervious to it because I feel like, well, I, these are my experiences. That's it. I, I right. don't know. You, that's right. This You're is, not making it up, these right? These are my human. Ex- it's not like in my last special, which I already kind of hate. My last special, when I look back at it, and I'm like, ugh, because you know, it was somewhat about me, but also going into the audience's yard to try to go look how funny this is, and now I'm sort of like, well. This is me, and these are the experiences. And I I don't know if you're not if you don't like that, then obviously we weren't meant to be friends. And I, you know, good good luck to you. Like, but I I also
1: I promise you, like I can give you a good joke that will make everyone laugh in a cheap way, but that's not remembered and that's not lasting. Right, right. That is that is a short term high. But to give someone something an an honest level of yourself to someone else, right? You give them that little piece of your soul and. You're connected forever. Like people connect. I, I had a woman here's the here's the I forgot about this. So, this is about two weeks ago. I'm opening up, you know, the delivery of all the mail comes and a woman sends me through our PO box. Um, dear Brad, here's a my mother used to love Marshalls when we we had no money. We used <laughs> to go, we used to buy layaway at Marshalls. My mom's favorite when I when I hit the best sell list for the very first time, we got the number one spot. I called my mother and I was and she starts crying and I'm crying because she's crying. And I said, where are you? And she's like, I'm at Marshall's. And I'm like, of course you're at Marshall's buying irregular socks, like for a deal. Like, you know, like that's my mom. And, and my readers know that love of my mom with Marshall's. And this stranger, I put it out there when my mom had passed, and, and this stranger sent me a $10 gift certificate to Marshall's oh, that says, cool. I was just thinking of you, and this oh. is in honor of your mother, and it's a Marshall's gift card. And I'm like... That's unbelievable to me. Like, that's art and magic. And when you put your, yourself out there like that, I'm telling you, when you do that stuff with your dad, there is you are not going to believe that something's going to come back in the universe, and you don't know what it's going to be, but it's coming back. And when it comes back, like right after my dad died, my dad was struck by lightning. And then his father was also struck by lightning. How the fuck is that right. possible? I'm like, do not come in the rain with me at any level on any day. Like, I, And it's impossible. So I knew my grandfather was struck by lightning because it was in his army discharge papers. But I always thought my dad's story was a little bit of bullshit. I'm like, there's no frigging way you were also struck by lightning like your father. That can't possibly—my dad could kind of bullshit a little bit. So I'm like, in his eulogy, I say—I don't know if this is true— But for the sake of the argument, I'm going to believe it's true because that's how he said it, and he always told it the same. He never exaggerated, never changed. A couple weeks after my dad dies, I get an email, and it says, Dear Brad, uh, you don't know me, but I read the eulogy you put on your website and on Facebook or wherever it was about your dad, and I want you to know you didn't know if your dad's story about being struck by lightning was true. I know it was because I was there the day he was struck. You want to hear the story. (laughs) Oh, shit. And in that moment— this stranger becomes the most important person in the universe because he has new information about my dead father. Yes. And now in that moment when he shares it with me, he tells me the whole story, literally how my dad grabbed the—at uh, camp and it hit the the metal bolt of the door, how it might—and he tells it the exact way my father told it, exactly. And he says, in that moment, my dad was alive again. Because I had new information. He was, I had a new story about father. And you already thought father. the book is closed. Right. And I think it, so. Um, the point of it being when you put yourself out there in the universe, something comes back in a way that you'll never predict. You know, whenever. Next time we talk, you're going to tell me what the crazy ass thing was, but you won't believe what well, comes back the to you.
0: Stuff always comes back to you. And you have to make the decision of what seeds do you want to plant to get that back. And if you plant shitty seeds, that's what's going to come back. If you open yourself up, You're going to get that back. You're going to— I got the best ending story for us. Okay. Ready for this? Yeah. Exactly what
1: you said. Here we go. So 9-11 happens. I get an email from a guy in a submarine, a sailor, and he says to me, "Um, I'm on this submarine. I can't tell you where I am. Undisclosed military location. We don't have many books, but we have your book, The First Council, on it. I just want to thank you, Brad, because it's brought me peace at this moment in time. I'm like, that's the greatest thank you I've ever heard. So I call my publisher. I say, can I get 10,000 books donated to the USO? She says, yeah. I'm like, that was easy. I'm like, I call another publisher. Can you get 10,000 books? We get 40,000 books donated to the USO. Now, flash forward 10 years. A couple years ago, the USO asked, they asked six authors every year to go over and entertain the troops in the Middle East. So I go to Kuwait, and we go all across uh, the Middle East entertaining the troops. And the first stop I make, a guy stands up and says, I want to thank you, Brad, for all those books you donated all those years ago. And I'm like, wait, how do you even know that? No one knows that story. And he said... I used to see stacks of your books saying courtesy of the USO. So I knew you had to have donated. And I'm like, wait, you're screwing it all up. I'm here to say thank you to you as a soldier. You're not supposed to be thanking me. So now I come home and I'm so taken by this guy's thank you. I'm like, I got to find the original guy on the submarine. I'm going to track him down. So I track the guy down. I say, I don't know if you remember, my name is Brad Meltzer. And 10 years ago, you wrote me an email from a submarine. And I just want to tell you what you set in motion because you just said, set it in things in motion. And I'm like—and I figure he's going to tell me he's inspired and, you know, was so great, and he's dead silent. And I'm like, are you okay? Because you could tell when something's bad on the other line. And he says, no. And I say, what's wrong? And he says, a couple days ago, my mother died from breast cancer. And what he doesn't know is my mother died from breast cancer. And I say, I'm here to deliver a message to you. And again, not in a New Age way, but I said, when my mom died, everyone gave me, I'm sure, like with your dad, like bad, useless advice, like, you know— Take it, you know, in stride or it's meant to be or crap like that. And I said, but one person gave me advice that I thought was really helpful at the time. And the advice was, our mothers never leave us ever. And I think you need to hear that. And he starts crying. And because he's crying, of course, I'm welling up. And again, it's not like I think there's glitter cannons, but like sometimes we think we're alone in this world. And sometimes you realize you're profoundly connected. And I promise you, when you put whatever you're putting out in the universe about your family— You're going to be profoundly repaid.
0: What an insanely unpredictable bow on the end of that, that that guy wrote an email in 10 10 years later. 10 years. You were able to – and you may have have helped – like he may have saved himself by reaching out to you to then be in the right place at the right time. And here's the
1: full button is I tell that story at a book signing. And I say to everyone, listen, when you're out there, you got to go say thank you to someone. Like, think of that first teacher who took a chance on you. Think of that first person who gave you your first job. You need to go thank them. And a guy in the front row goes, then I need to thank you, Brad and it's the guy from the submarine surprised me at the book event and literally i'm like i could hear the audience gasp and i feel it against my chest but literally that's what he came in it was like it was the most unbelievable payback so do whatever you're doing with your dad and your stuff and don't hold back on it if you're going to get it
0: Brad i it's so wonderful to see you again after all these years and i'm so excited for you and happy and proud that you've done all these wonderful things Congratulations on your grifter son. Yes, uh, exactly. who's going
1: to be we're going to be working both of us for him one day. And your
0: family, and also uh, I am Lucille Ball and President Shadow and Decoded and just everything that you're doing.
1: Listen, advice to you. I love when good people, good things happen to them. Love seeing everything that's happened. It's been fantastic. Vice Thank versa. you so much, man. Love you.
0: Get out of my studio. That's right. Over. Sorry. My studio. This weird room. Right,
1: this room. It's better than the room we were in last time. <laughs> yes,
0: yeah. Well, yeah, because uh, it's fucking uh, one of the Kardashians not going to burst in because we're not at the E! Channel. And
1: say hi to your mom. I'm going to, uh, you know what, my father What's in What's that supposed to mean?
0: Yes, no, yeah. say, say hi, say hi, hi to mom. your mom. mom. Wink. Wink. Uh, I will. Uh, enjoy your burrito, everyone. Continue to enjoy it. Make good choices. Put good things into the world. You know, maybe don't do it for selfish reasons, but if you put whatever you put in the world, will come back to you. Plant your burritos. <laughs> Gather you burritos while ye may. I'm just going to start putting a lot of, am going to start forcing that into their advice. I just had visions of just a, hand covering a burrito. In Carpe burrito. I'm just going to make a lot of really bad, <laughs> <laughs> hacky, <laughs> stupid. Because I don't give a fuck if you like me anymore. We still recording? I don't care. I don't even care if we're recording.
1: I I was going to say that even if you weren't recording. I'm glad you
0: said that because I don't care. I'm glad that you care a little bit. A lot of it. I don't care. Now leaving nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.